Welcome to the ninth episode of the New Models Podcast. We are back in Berlin with your regularly scheduled programming. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models co-founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller. And we have a special guest today, Cade, also known as Helveticade on your favorite social platforms. And Cade recently wrote an essay on what he calls weaponized design. So if you've been starving for some more tech criticism and platform bashing, you'll get a lot of it here. And Cade's experience certainly lends itself well to some really interesting perspectives and why MMORPGs might just be the key to designing a better social internet. Let's get right to it. So we're in the studio right now, back in Berlin, with Cade at Helveticade, if you want to look for him. And Cade, we met at Revision Crypto Conference in Berlin, where he gave a talk on weaponized design. Yeah, we're really had lots of conversations previous to this, so we're really happy to get Cade into the studio. Okay, so just jumping right in. Maybe you can just first say what weaponized design is in really basic terms. Just lay out what that term signals. So weaponized design is where a system or an interface harms a set of users whilst operating entirely within its intended rule set. The talk itself centers a lot around platforms in particular, but it, it really it, what it does is instead of looking through these infrastructures from like a conceptual level. Instead, it flips that and tries to talk about things from the the way the user kind of experiences it and then sort of works its way backwards from there. When you frame it from that perspective, um, the talk and the concepts become really accessible. Right. I mean, and there's this reversal you do in this. So there's an essay, there's a talk that you give around this. You've this... Uh, argument has taken different forms in your work, but you take this quote from Donald Norman, uh, which says, users are criticized for misusing machines rather than criticizing the developer's design, or that's a paraphrasing of it. Yeah. But So there's this reversal that um, weaponized design begins to open up. Yeah. And I wonder, maybe, could you say, like, you know, a lot of the ideas around weaponized design are in the back of everyone's mind. They're sort of peripheral. What was it for you that brought you to write an essay on this? What was the, can you maybe speak about anecdotally about a situation that compelled you to sit down and write an essay? So when I started out um, in design as a designer, um, I was very quickly disillusioned by this kind of conflict that we had. On one hand, um, your design briefs, your creative briefs were things like, this needs to be trustworthy, frictionless, all these kinds of things. And like, indeed, a lot of my education was around like user obviousness and things like that. And so what you had is this these situations where we were designing stuff where people were meant to be really um, feel safe and, want, and feel like a, a product or whatever was trustworthy. But then your development team would be mocking the client's system and how unpatched it was, how insecure it was and things like that. At the same time as, you know, reading about government leaks or the Snowden leaks, for example, or outrageous things like the PlayStation Network hack of 2011, which, you know, millions of accounts being exposed. And then a friend of mine got caught up in the iCloud photo hack and she, they saw the sort of effect that that, ha that had on her. It was pretty devastating. The thing with the iCloud photo hack that people sort of don't realize is, I guess this is a culture of celebrity around it, but before Apple had two-factor authentication on all of their iCloud accounts, and just when they rolled out iCloud photo sharing, your device would upload everything to the cloud and back it up, and then it was really easy to fish, trick Apple into giving you access to an account, right? And so the cult of celebrity kind of buried the fact that the tools to do that were shared quite widely, like the, the, the techniques really that were used to, to make that possible. And so even though the discourse publicly was around celebrity culture and, and the violation of, of rights, especially amongst you know female celebrities, there was like an uncountable number of people who this happened to on a day-to-day -day level and people that weren't really represented in that conversation. I was very upset about that for a long time. And then last year I got a, a, an ability to, to publish a piece about it. So I wrote, I basically took all of this research that I've been collecting for about two years and, and wrote it into this sort of angry essay. 
what's interesting to me is it starts for you um, in a in a in a place of coding, a coding weakness, a, a problem with um, with with something which which isn't necessarily human. But your what made you upset, what compelled you to write this, was the hacking of the human space. So and the the transgression of human emotions. So I, I like this uh, this this is an interesting intersection of the the sort of the the cold numerical part of web development and the effects on the affective human uh, self that is interfacing with them. The the main part that that's I think the key part is the hacking of the human space for sure. Um, typically, when I in terms of the essay, I really think of it in terms of design teams being blind to to designing at scale. I always thought of like the, maybe there's a difference between being weaponized and like instrumentalized and like right. weapon weaponized. But I also think that maybe. You could call it like an attack surface rather than a weapon, which is sort of, I guess, you know, two sides of the same coin. But um, even if it's unintentional, yes, yeah, it's going to yes. be a weapon, like a car or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think though the difference between like a car and a like an interface is that in this case, there's a couple of key differences to it. So for for example, there's a tension that exists where we think that mobile phones or smartphones are deeply private and personal devices or our laptops are deeply private and personal. But in fact, they're almost like a one-way mirror that you have in like a police interrogation uh-huh. room, except instead of on the other side, it's not like two detectives, it's like the entire world, right? right? Like there's basically, there's this weird kind of public-private nature of devices. Um, you know, there's a there's a thing in the, in the InfoSec community that's that's uh, where you cover your camera. I know a lot of people are beginning right. to do that right. now, right, and I mean that's a that's an example, right? Like you're basically trying to tape up the the two way mirror or the one way mirror, right? It reminds me of like Silicon Valley workers like not letting their kids have <laughs> I- iPhones. <laughs> right. or, additionally, I think Kate, if I remember from from your talk, it's it's kind of like the 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 people at Apple who decided to uh, implement this feature that made the iCloud hacks possible, and I believe it was. Uh, so, sent to consumers as a default, right, to upload their photos to the iCloud. But I think, right, it's it's a case of those engineers actually would never imagine putting, like, nude photos on their iPhone in the first place because they're already sort of aware of the potentials of this happening. I think Apple's got this really weird thing with sex. Like, in the (laughs) essay, I call it, like, a weird sexless kind of way of designing, which is funny because, like, a lot of the, the... a lot of the work they do in industrial design kind of walks a very fine line where they don't they don't sexualize it, but it is kind of like a fashionable. It's kind of pretty pro Anna the obsession with thinness. I right. always thought absolutely. <laughs> sure. it, it's, it's very true. Super creepy, yeah. yeah. But 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 what I think what I think is interesting is um, that there's that kind of sexlessness. It, it extends all the way through to. Their entire thing, like you can't have sexual apps in the app store. I mean, you you have hookup apps, but you can't have pornography in the app store. Right. There was a show very recently, I can't remember the name of it, but one of the Apple Music slash Apple TV exclusives was dropped, or at least someone on the team walked away from it, like a director or something, walked away from it because they were okay kind of with the violence, but they were really not okay with the sex in this in the series that, the, that the, this team was writing. So there's always been this kind of family-friendly nature to Apple. And and in the case of to sort of bring that back home and connect these these points together, you have this public private device. It's marketed as a pub, as a private device. It's also highly sexualized in this particular way, um, and it promises you sort of this sort of neoliberal idea of individual freedom, right, and the participation in the network. But for an individual within that framework, where you see your device as an extension of yourself. It's essentially like almost like a almost like a home invasion, right? Mm-hmm. So like that's where the weaponization comes into it. It's definitely an emotive term, and it's definitely designed with a particular mindset in mind, which is this disconnect between the reality of what the tech implementation looks like versus how it's how people see it and how it's sold to people. Can you talk a little bit about the fantasy space of Silicon Valley and like, you know, we think about how something that Daniel and I have talked about a bit about the rounded corners mm. in, you know, post web two yeah, design. I mean, the move towards infantilization. Across in, the board. In, in, yeah, greater and greater. And, and the yeah. kind of language that always, you know, if it were in a European context, it would be the do as opposed to the Z or the two as opposed to the vu. It's always an, an extra personal familiar tone and where that comes from and and is there an inability of extrapolating towards negative spaces what is that in the silicone what is driving that in the in the genesis of a lot of this design there's a lot of things i can say a lot of them will be generalizations because there's a lot of people working in silicon valley and when you spend any time there um, and you talk to people 
with, with from this perspective, you get a lot of different kinds of perspectives Definitely, on that. Sure. But but one thing, there's a couple of things that keep coming up. So for example, there's still people who who believe in the, the Steve Jobsification of delight and empowering users, the bicycle of the mind concept. And that's kind of good, but... <laughs> I don't know this term. I don't know, you don't know this term. No, so, no, so, no, so, we're all laymen. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, that's stuff. right. So, so um, bicycle of the mind, like this is early Steve Jobs when he still had hair and, and not, didn't have cancer, like when he was uh, before he left Apple the first time. So he basically described the Mac as like the bicycle for the mind. And he was framing that particular idea of like, you know, the industrial revolution is about... The augmentation of the body and the the information technology revolution is about the augmentation of the mind like the first steps of that right and so he sort of described described it in a really accessible way which is like the bicycle of the mind like this multi-purpose thing you can ride it for leisure you can travel places with it you can use it for work all of these kinds of things right so there's a lot of people within silicon valley who still think of it that way there is a lot of tech optimism still in silicon valley to a fault there's a lot of stuff happening recently. There's a lot of employees right now, um, you know, walking out or resigning over the Google Project Dragonfly um, search engine. That's the one in China that's censored and surveilled by the Chinese government, built in in secret in collaboration with the Chinese government. Um, so there is this kind of this this shift where tech is beginning to look at itself a little bit more critically. But at, on a day to day level, a lot of designers and developers and people within the execution teams still see the greater good of what they're doing as like the main driving force, right? And and the problem with that is is that when you when you spend any time in places like Palo Alto and things like that, what you see is like, we call it a bubble, but it's really like a giant gated community, right? And and that's really where it gets really interesting because that gated community, it even includes the people who are sort of on the lower socioeconomic side. So, I mean, when I was there last time, I had a lot of conversation with Uber drivers about like housing prices. Um, and there were a lot of people who were using Uber to as a form of income full time who just sort of still had this idea of like, or at least anecdotally still had this idea in their head that it was just a matter of time until they'd break out of that and move into another thing. So there's this weird kind of optimism within that space. Even I mean, that's a more that's American in general, but I do think that Silicon Valley is just somehow mm. a distillation of that that I, kind of mentality. And of course, yeah. then the people who are influential there they've all had positive outcomes so it's easy for them to sort of project that onto True. that possibility Good point. there's also the case where like a lot of the early wins with uber for example or the gig economy on a greater level a lot of the the early stories of people making money in that were like the drivers were making a reasonable income within places like silicon valley so as that's dropped off obviously that's like something that a lot of people are upset about but there's right. still this un sort of underlying thing of like well we there were people within this community that like culturally shifted the idea of what a gig economy was it's like a distillation of the American dream, like right to a specific kind mm -hmm. of can-do optimism. I guess to ramble back and circle back to the uh, to the, the question, there's people there who are really driven from this idea of like, we are developers of tools that people use to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that they see it, right? And, and, and that they see themselves as like cultural facilitators in a, in a positive aspect, right? And they say, well, all we need is a little bit more moderation or a little bit more of whatever solutionism that we need in order to overcome some of the, these issues. Of course, the difference between hanging out in Silicon Valley in sort of 2015 or 2014 and hanging out in 2017 and 18 is the shock of that whole clusterfuck of the American election, right? That's when you start getting people who are like, wait a minute, maybe there's something a little bit broader than that. I just wonder if the fact that like Google employees are more critical of Google is just a result of like overwhelming criticism from the greater public. I don't know if it's really about like self self driven reflection. I don't know. And I also just wonder, I mean, back to Apple, I, I feel like that sanitized kind of infantilizing, they are kind of unassailable in a way that Facebook is, you know, near the edge, like basically that Pixar mindset or whatever is like, it's a better, it's better, yeah. So it's it's funny that like this idea that Steve Jobs gets kicked out of Apple, founds Pixar with a bunch of other people, which basically makes kids films and then goes back from kids films back to Apple, mm. basically distills a very complicated company down to like a handful of like plug and play any anyone can use it, any idiot uh -huh. can use this. That's just like been mass adopted by the industry. Um, there's a there's a piece a magazine's called Real Life Mag. Oh, yeah. 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 And um, the piece is called The Babysitter's Club, and it really kind of explores this this idea of um, tech infantilization, even down to the marketing, and, like, uses examples like Yelp. And, you know, when you pull down to refresh on your iPhone, on a Yelp page, there's, like, some cute 
nonsense yeah, animating and things right, like that. Right. Tech has moved, as I said, the bicycle of the mind concept has moved from that to this weird kind of class system where instead of having classes that are just, you know, middle class, lower class and services between those two, it's also like this third thing where tech is kind of taking part of that sort of service class as well. So, you know, this is true of things like voice assistants, for example, and this kind of fetishization of the voice assistant where we're beginning to you know, pour billions of dollars and immense amount of computing and environmental power into basically our own sort of personal assistance. It's this move away from tech as a form of creativity or tech as a facilitator for communication and towards like tech as um, trying to replicate European colonialism uh, and dominance over other cultures, but instead you're replacing those other cultures with like weird AI servants, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, it, like, yeah, it's, Bad it's Alexa. A, it, it's equal opportunity dominance, I guess, <laughs> over some lesser. Going back to weaponized design, though, what is your agenda on giving the talks? Is it to make designers more aware about how these things emerge? Is it to present solutions to them? Is it to kind of map how it happens? And, and I also wonder what are the kind of solutions that you think should be applied or... Is that still like an ongoing conversation? There's a lot of solutionism in tech. That's like a really obvious thing to say, I think. But um, when you're criticizing tech as well, especially design, which is like a very fashionable, very trend-driven, uh, very apolitical in the nature of the discussions that they have, not necessarily in their output. Um, well, not at all in their output. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but there's this kind of... Um, yearning all the time for we need solutions to everything and whenever you have a discussion with a design team or a developer team it's always from a position of solutionism i think the problem is so systemic i can't walk into a room and say these are the solutions but there are some sort of examples that you have for example participatory design and the politics of massive multiplayer games which is basically product design where you embrace the politics of your fan base or your user base so in in a lot of cases like People were using massive multiplayer online games as a, as a form of a social network. And the developers of World of Warcraft or EVE Online, which is another big one that's had a lot of papers written about its politics and how you can design for its politics, those teams embraced those politics and their user base and their relationships in the design phase. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, like that's a great example you can take and like put it in front of other, other forms of design and say, well, what's happening here that's not happening in that practice, right? That's one example. I heard I was reading something where they were saying, you know, despite all this scare articles about how awful MM uh, like or like yeah MMORPGs are and how alienating they are, they actually say that the instances of depression, suicidal thoughts, or whatever among younger people who were heavily involved in World of Warcraft or other um, online role-playing games were far less than those who are just using, you know, Facebook, uh, Snapchat, the other main teenage social media stacks. So it's interesting that, yes, there's actually the connectivity that was allowed in that design actually fostered Also achievable goals, it, right? Also yeah. true. Yeah. And yeah. narrative yeah. as well. Right. right. Yeah. It's shared narrative. Yeah, exactly. Shared um, narrative, huge. I mean, I wonder, too, if part of that is the fact that they designed to expect sort of antagonism and agonism and sort of tribal battles. But true. in a way, the mechanics of it enabled that to be sustainable instead of sort of emerge in these damaging flywheels that you can't really do anything about as they are on social media. Right. There's EVE Online is a really great example of this. So EVE Online has uh, a, a dedicated player base that's been going on for, I think, a decade now. It is problematic in some ways. Like, they have the free market. It's very much like a, a particular capitalistic viewpoint of what a society could, like a simulation of a society could look like. It's a game set in space. You, have, you build spaceships, you start out on your own, it's a very slow game, you have to like mine things and make money and all this kind of stuff and then you can build a ship. But, but because the scale of the ships that you could potentially build were like enormous, people started banding together. Firstly, it was kind of ad hoc and then they, they saw that that was happening and then they turned this thing that you could, players could have alliance, uh, corporations. So basically they took this sort of ad hoc organization that was happening outside of the game and they turned it into a real thing and then what happened was people started building collectively these ships that were like you know a million us dollars in real money or whatever some crazy amounts of money basically from there like there's all of these corporations that have alliances or they fight each other and there's like one story that i remember and i don't remember any of the names but i do remember the story really well someone who was a very high member of a particular corporation turned out had been for years a mole working with another corporation and basically <laughs> took down this corporation like when he got to the very top 
just like absolutely <laughs> oh. obliterated it. And basically the storyline was like basically a political thriller. It is this idea of like conflict in, in, in society being channeled through like non-destructive means, although, you know, a lot of people really invested in it get really hurt. You know, trolling and griefing is also a problem on a sort of day-to-day -day level, but like comparatively to what you see in like <laughs> social media without this kind of shared narrative, it's a bit sort of, I think there's a big difference there and it's worth exploring. There's no opportunity for community on a lot of these platforms to totally atomize. Yeah. There's, you fact, can't build a team on Twitter very right. easily or there's nothing in the design that encourages. Isn't that's what the group DM is, which like I'm not. I have to say I'm yes. not invited to too many of those, but I, it's, I I hear it's some sort of like legendary thing that I hear about. But I do feel like that's where <laughs> that's where a lot of that happens. I feel like like a lot of journalists have that. I think there that's is that's where people who know is, everything and always have platinum takes to get their info from. Right, yes. I guess. I wonder just if you could, just for the purpose of this cast and for listeners who are maybe coming to your work for the first time, do you want to um, list off a couple of examples of, of times when, you, you know, weaponized design meets the average user and things don't go so well? well there's three main ways of, in which weaponization of design can happen. We talked about the first one, which was the Apple um, iCloud photo hack. And that's like where, where you make a trade-off and that trade-off based on what you think is the best for your users versus the reality, uh, which is often clouded either by your practice or by your life experience as a design team, then results in like that harm happening. So in, in the iCloud photo case, it's like um, the trade-off is we want to be simple. Everyone uploads to the cloud to solve a problem, which is that people lose their photos when their fragile phone drops in a puddle or smashes on the ground or gets obsoleted. Um, so that's the first one. So the other two that I want to explore, one is this sort of apathy. You trade off the complexity of humanity in favor of designing for an I ideal user. And so in Facebook's case, this is like the year in review thing that they put on the top of your timeline. So at the end of the year, they like run this algorithm on your timeline and it like finds all of the posts that you've made or for the year. And they like put these balloons at the top of your, of the top of your newsfeed. And it's like, Hey, here's your year. And it's like confetti or people dancing and it's illustrations around it. And then in the dead center, um, is this photo that represents your year, or what Facebook thinks your year is. And, and it's like photos that have been shared on Facebook of someone's dead relative's ashes and like surrounded by like, you know, stylized cocktail glasses and, and stuff like that. <laughs> Confetti. Yeah. Right, it's just like, it's that kind of everyday dystopia that's like really just both, it's everyday because it's so banal, but it's like still this relived trauma for the people who see that stuff, right? Um, so that's that's one example. And then the other example is a sort of conscious weaponization. And I actually have another, I've got two examples of that. The first is Facebook again. In particular, the criticism that's not really leveled at the design team around the amount of work they do to, to make, they call it frictionless, but it's actually like, in, like you know, addiction patterns <laughs> around things like... <laughs> around things Junkie like... Junkie life is pretty frictionless, yeah, it's yeah. true. I wish all my drug dealers were frictionless. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like the frictionless news feed, right, where they make tweaks and they write about it and they say like, hey, here's all these great ways in which we've made content easier to engage with, right? But really it's like what they're measuring is like how long you spend on news feed. We are sort of trapped in this kind of context-free, flattened way of interacting with interfaces. I just think it's ironic that they do this like really kind of hyper-simplified, cartoony, infantilizing uh, sort of language around everything, but their terms of service. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, I also, I'm Enter, just a little, like, black and white text. A little bit skeptical of their claims. Like, if they can actually manipulate people's, you know, emotions and have sad posts and stuff, how can they be so thoughtless and clueless about end of year right, posts? Because right. they, they're clearly they're not actually that good at determining sentiment. I think from posts. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's all sorts of messiness there. All right. They, they realized that they, they did this end of year thing and that, it, you know, oh shit, it didn't work as well as we thought. It had some major flaws. What was the incentive for them to continue with that kind of forced engagement? Well, the, the first thing is that, that each of those ones that I described were from like different years. So it's okay. not just a single year, it's like multiple exactly. years. So that makes it even weirder. Well, exactly. Um, and, and the, the problem is, is that, like, I don't have an answer to that. And I think this comes down to, like, you know, we could go off on this tangent, my God, like, governance and transparency inside of, mm -hmm. inside of, in, inside of these corporations. But to, uh, it really comes to, I, I don't know why. Um, these teams are measured by engagement, by 
ad, like what eyeballs on attention. That's my question, yeah. But I mean, I think, isn't it just like a lot of, there's other examples of it where it's just an acceptable level of collateral damage. Like for the vast majority right. of people, it's good. I, it reminds me a Data lot of the, uh, what is it, unsafe at any speed where if the Ford Pinto, where they knew that mm. there was a fatal flaw there, but they determined that it would cost them more yep. to oh, fix it right. than to yeah. pay that's the a, life yeah. insurance. Very, I think it's very similar. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And there's just a, you know, that's, that's, it was rational from a corporate perspective and what their actual responsibilities are. Right. Uh, that was, that was like a rational thing for them to do. It's, Cold, heartless right. one, but rational. It just seems yeah. so amazing and ironic in the time of safe spaces that then you know these big stacks get away with doing what is actually emotionally very violent. There's, there's a, there's, yeah, there's definitely. So there's two things. Firstly, move fast and break things. The cliche Facebook motto, which is like when you think about it in terms of a, in terms of a car that <laughs> yeah, explodes, right. is actually really <laughs> funny. Um, but but he just, I just saw that, just thought about it, and then you got yeah. So the other, <laughs> the other side of it though as well. Is um American Airlines <laughs> who doesn't break things? Oh God! <laughs> SpaceX, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh God! So the problem ultimately comes down to like opaque natures of of governance and of algorithms, right? And like the EU has kind of been thinking about this a bit. They've got the General Data Protection Regulation, which sort of starts to sort of mitigate some of this stuff, although that's... Does it? Yeah, no, does no, no, it? I was about to... I yeah. said, although, although... It makes you click a lot yeah, of cookies yeah. things yeah. without reading a single one of yeah, them. Yeah, no That's kidding. for sure. No yeah, kidding. but 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 outside of that, there's this whole other set of legislation around, like, right to to challenge, like, algorithmic decision-making and stuff like that. And then when that happens, then an, an algorithm producer has to, or a developer, has to then justify the algorithm's response or its, or its, its decision-making. And, and these haven't been tested yet, but these are like these first steps towards like giving people, like trying to rebalance some of that power. I mean, I, there's a lot of problems with it and a lot of it is untested, but I mean, like there's already these sorts of discussions happening. To bring it back to like, so on a broader level, like when we talk about EVE Online again, one of the things that they have is they every year i think they elect 10 members of the gaming community to serve like on a political board that w works with the developers and they have access to all of the decision making and they have input into the decision making things like that so if you think about like if you were to take this idea of making small changes to like this structure that we have today just in terms of tech stacks and you did something really simple like what if you just legislated that like all of the stacks had to have like a user representation body. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Totally. Yeah, right? totally. How does that change things? I mean, that's a really small thing, but has mass potential, massive, you know. Or corporations in general. I mean, there's lots of problems with the, the judicial system in the US or really systems like this all, all over the world. But like this idea of jury-based justice, right? Like huge problems with it. But like imagine if you just took that concept of like the civilians participating in some sort of larger structure in that kind of way. In this case, it's a government structure, but then if you apply it to like governance within like, like specifically seats at the table in boardrooms or in decision-making spaces, like that changes, I think, things dramatically. Of course, there's also all sorts of other attack surfaces that become available and things like that too. I mean, like imagine Twitter users on the board of Twitter, like that's a fucking nightmare, right? <laughs> the election ca uh, campaign would be pretty exciting. Yeah, that'd be even more of a farce maybe, but it's still an interesting sort of theoretical. I mean, yeah. there's actually just, uh, it was a measure in Michigan that I did vote for and it, and it passed and there is like a citizen's board to, to basically oversee gerrymandering. Oh. And basically huh. redistricting and I think that is a new trend actually that's happening mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that was like sort of a, a test uh, market for that concept it'll probably be expanded right. and yeah I mean I again yeah I mean the idea of personally if I was ever actually I mean imagine if I was also like wrongly accused of some kind of horrible crime and then being tried by the jury of my peers which are just <laughs> <No>. randos <laughs> yeah well, terrifying to me yeah, totally so, that's why I said that's yeah. why that's why I did say that's like a, there's a lot wrong with that system yeah. I'm not saying that we should make that a real thing I mean sure. the idea of a professional jury I'm kind of morse into people who are like at least have to be legally literate in some way I mean and there is probably is some equivalent of that okay then you get in the problem of like what are experts Experts and etc. Yeah. But I do yeah. think like there is probably some middle ground yeah. also that yeah. would be. I was sighing just because I actually spent a week on jury duty once, and you have no idea how terrifying your peers are <laughs> until you spend a week with like a purely random sample yeah, of true. Americans. It was a huge <laughs> eye opener. It was really scary. 
Um, well, look at the El Chapo jury. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love the El Chapo jury. One guy couldn't because he couldn't. He got kicked off the jury because there was an El Chapo sandwich at his bodega. That was his favorite sandwich. It was a very good sandwich. <laughs> so he thought that he would have a biased opinion. And, or they thought he he thought El Chapo could find him by sending yeah. his assassins to find which deli sold the El Chapo sandwich. I mean, hey. But that sounds like a good way of getting out of jury duty. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. <laughs> In case you're a new listener or you haven't listened in a while, we do have a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash new models. Our premium podcast like this one will continue to be free, but we will be offering bi-weekly dirt style conversations meant just for our community. That'll be Patreon exclusive. We'll also give you early access to whatever new things we have coming up in the future. And there's no digital cast system where you get more for what you can afford to pay. And we hope you join us. Patreon.com slash new models. I have a note here from talking to you earlier, Kate, that just says, Internet as 2000s MTV. And I think there's kind of a good... I thought there was a good thought behind then. Could you... Uh, do you remember that? Can yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Um, so this is more of like a generational thing, right? So in, in some of my work, there's a body of research that's beginning to bubble up that suggests that like teenagers are doing things like turning off Touch ID on their devices. Mm. So they don't use like biometric authentication. They don't... And when I say youth, I mean like TikTok users and stuff yeah. like that. When, when the GDPR happened in Europe, if you had a new account and, and it was... Or if you were someone who was under, I think it was 18. So, so yeah, 13 to 18. If you had an account between 13 and 18, you had to get your parent to agree on your behalf. And what was happening, what we were finding in, in this research, in this sort of infosec community privacy stuff, is that parents were just like, I don't know what, what I'm agreeing to. What right. is this? Like, what have you handed me to, like, look right. at here? And so what you have, like, these, the first experiences that kids had were, like, explaining privacy, like, politics <laughs> at 13 years old to parents, right? And so... Actually, one of the side effects of the GDPR in Europe, at least, has been that there's like it's immediately brought to to light for kids, like some of the you know ways in which the, the, there's an infrastructural level of lack of privacy yeah. and things, right? It's super interesting. Coming back to the MTV thing, like I think that there's there's a lot of people growing up now who just none of the internet really resonates with them. None of what we've built resonates. I don't think that like you know you have tiny kids who really like Alexas, um, <laughs> and then. Like- Three-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, three, yeah, like just babies who love, love that's Alexa. That's like Teddy Ruxpin. They just like something that isn't human that talks, talks to, them. to them. Yeah, exactly. It's a Furby, right, basically. Right, right. And, and then And then you go all the way up to, you know, sort of millennials who, are, you know, we're all still on these platforms that's kind of developed 10 years ago. And, and then, like, all of these new platforms that are kind of catering to, like, the newer demographics are just not resonating for a bunch of different reasons. So take, sorry to bring it back to weaponized design. One example is um, using Pinterest Mm -hmm. and how you can poison the algorithm with a brand new Pinterest account. You can set it up so that you have like a handful of, um, brand new account, handful of interests. And then you can get from beautiful recipes in your Pinterest, like Pinterest recipes to like anti-vaxxer conspiracies (laughs) and like a handful of clicks to the point where like your entire Pinterest page is just that, right? And and there's a demo online about it. It's really fascinating called the digital polarization of Pinterest on YouTube. If you want to look it up, I again want to just make this relationship between the all-encompassing um, scope of like capital right now, and also this is like the analogy to soy. This feeling where you can't get outside of it. It's very difficult right. to get out to get some some space of thinking freely from it. Of course, Cade, where you are at the level of design and and infosec, etc., that is one of the places of intervention, which makes your your position. Very interesting. So when ideology isn't formed from like thinkers or, or like from a particular political structure, but rather like bits and pieces from different political structures fed through something that's designed <laughs> to resonate with you, mm-hmm. like specifically, like what is that an ideology? Like what, what would we actually call that? I think a lot of people are beginning to really understand that there's something quite fundamentally wrong with how we use this stuff uh, and how there's now talk finally of people beginning to like senators in the States or in, in Europe. I mean, like the UK government just last week seized a treasure trove of fa- Facebook papers from like an app developer from his laptop in the UK. But on, on a broader level, I do think that like it's beginning to fall apart in the same way as like 
um, you know, this is a lazy example, but cigarette companies, which had like a global dominance and were marketing to kids and all this kind of stuff, you know, and then there was like, oh, wait, actually, we did bury some research. And then that becomes like a cascading thing that starts taking down um, Facebook. You can see the beginnings of it happening with Google. There's two there's two contrasting stories or two complementary stories happening at the same time. One is the Chinese search engine that they're trying to build. The other one is the Pentagon defense contract where they're building drone AI with Eric Schmidt. And every day there's now a story about how Android, you turn everything off on an Android device and it still tracks you and all this kind of stuff. What if Google is like in danger of getting into a perspective of the same kind of space that like Facebook is in right now, where suddenly you're, you're learning that like key Facebook C-level executives are like going after people like on an individual level. And George stuff like Soros. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As an example, I mean, I mean okay, as I an example of yeah, Jews being anti-Semitic, there is a there is yeah. a good one. Cheryl Sandberg going yeah. after George Soros. That's for sure. That's true. Oof. Yeah. I mean, but the difference between Facebook and Google is Google on a daily basis works for people. So people, their experience of using Google is still, they think, a relatively like innocuous one. Right? YouTube and Android, in my my view, are like the most dangerous in terms of their precariousness, right? Mm-hmm. And they're both they're both the problem is that they're both amazing tools, right? Like YouTube, when you think about like, you know, the original promise of YouTube is like yeah. all of the video in the world in one place. Pretty amazing concept. Yeah. Um, the original, like Android being an open source platform, is a really Great. amazing yeah. sort of idea. But like in both cases, they're in these precarious situations where they're receiving criticism from multiple angles. There's other things too, like you know, Microsoft is about to get investigated by the EU for surveillance within like Windows and Office. Not to sort of say that the market kind of justifies anything or like invalidates anything but that like tech stocks are down Mm -hmm. in a pretty serious way there's like a jitteriness sort of from all corners and even if they're not even if it's just that one of them goes down and the other ones don't like the thing is is that the question around like infrastructure unmovable infrastructure that we were talking about before is not set like it's not it's not that these are here to stay that's true yeah and it's like it doesn't need to be one it needs or it doesn't need to be all of them it could just be one another thing i think that's really interesting is like the hypothetical where like apple has a bad quarter probably going to happen like there's Mm -hmm. talk of it happening maybe it will but then like if it has a bunch of bad quarters um and it's like it recognizes that they can't make money off devices anymore and they have to switch to something like services then the best way to make money off services is to mine the shit out of the data that mm-hmm, you have. And right. so, you know, how many how many quarters would need to be bad before Tim Cook is replaced by somebody who hmm. who is more amenable to mining iPhone data? Like that's that's all you need is like a sea level change. Right. That's really interesting. And then that changes the whole the whole landscape again. Right. You know, a lot of times the discussion on this cast is imagining the Western, um, you know, non-super precarious individual. How does all of what we're talking about today, how does that apply when you move to, say, the global south or to an area that has much more precarious infrastructure? Interesting headline we saw from this week even was the war in Yemen. Um, The civil war is being fought over who actually controls the internet there, right? And so I wonder just in your experience, how yeah how this discussion would apply to a different a different demographic than the American slash German British Australian. I mean, that's a very big question. It's a huge there's question. A, Sorry. I mean, there's but it's also just class differences because yeah, Kate, that's I also think true. you've looked into a bit of I mean, different modes of operation uh, or different modes of engaging with online platforms in the online space via mobile technology. Say that isn't necessarily one man one phone or like the way we actually think of it as being this and i mean kate even used a metaphor carly you'd used earlier it's like the phone actually being an extension of your personal body right as opposed to confusion with that right right um but extended ai yeah but i know kate i think you said you've done some things looking into uh uh, all kind of alternate models of of how people are engaging with mobile technology, maybe on uh, yeah. more precarious classes. So we like even beyond like beyond speaking about the global south, which is like a mix of a tremendous number of like experiences that also have like their own class sort of differences yes, too. Like right. I think we can actually even go a step back from that and towards home a little bit and say like so economically precarious situations. Uh, in the United States, for example. Um, There's a really nice study that was put out that examines the cultural and like everyday roles of cell phones in the lives of African-Americans working and living in Harlem in New York City, right? And 
there's all of these things that you just don't think about that this study sort of describes. And for example, iPhones are highly sought after, not just because they're like a status symbol, but they're also like known for being really reliable. If you run your entire life off of a cell phone, which a lot of people do because it's the only form of connectivity and you have to have a cell phone in order to participate in this modern society, then it becomes your lifeline. It becomes the way, especially with women, right? It becomes the way that you book childcare or the way that you um, move between sort of gig jobs, for example, or the way that you schedule or receive your shifts from your boss or something if you work retail even or something your payment, like this. I mean. right? Even payments or even paying between yourself and other people and things like that. So it becomes this kind of lifeline that you rely on. At the same time, that one of the recurring um, stories in this study was how if you work retail, your boss may like try to FaceTime you to make sure that you're actually sick, right? This is this is in the study, yeah. like a specific so, specific wow. thing in the study, right? Wow, yeah. boss literally asking a FaceTime when you call wow. in. So. I mean, yeah. is this is like a, this is something that's happening like widely, or is like one specific case? Well, I mean, example. This is like amplified across like poorer labor markets, right? This is like lived experiences. So there's that kind of thing. There's examples like. Um, device recycling where people like a device enters a community or a family or something like that and it might have like two or three owners you get these um, situations where they're full of photos they're like eight gigs full <laughs> of photos barely working cracked screen and so people don't install new apps on them they don't get to participate in the kinds of experiences that we have just because the devices not that they're, they're too old for the for the apps that they use that we use, but they're also like so full that they can't install anything new. And so what you have is like this entirely limited version of like the full participation of the internet. Of course, they might have Instagram or something like that, and they might participate in like this broader culture that we sort of talk about. But like through this crappy devices and, and, and economic sort of disempowerment, it's like completely limits their ability to participate with the online space, which we kind of think, well, you should be able to install anything. Like the apps are meant to be frictionless and like easy to install and things like that, but like that's not how people see things. So culturally, there's like a big difference between those two. I mean, I have two minds with my response. On the one hand, I'm like, well, why isn't Silicon Valley? I mean, I use that term as a bad catch-all. But yeah, big tech. Yeah, big, t big tech, <laughs> better. Why is big tech not accounting for these alternate uses? And like, should they be like, you know, designing with this in mind? On the other hand, I actually think that this, I mean, what are they, can you apply the term digital undercommons here for that? I've heard that term used before. I'm not sure if that's totally precise. But um, uh, sort of a misuse out of need of devices sometimes slightly outdated in order to support the community that they're used within, but also then a collective misuse of that technology or alternate use, if not misuse. I mean, it certainly destroys the value of the personal data. Right, exactly, precisely. Yeah, precisely. You, so you, you end cannot, up with like a, chim a chimera. Ex right. So so precariousness sort of shows its, its face in lots of different ways. Um, in various parts of the US, um, if you take a sample of an economically precarious group of people, um, the average number of phones per person is like 2.5. One, one reason why this could be is that people get a, a government subsidized smartphone that gives them like one gigabyte. There's all these sorts of sort of, uh, you know, just crazy phones being put out, usually running sort of versions of Android that have been modified. And they use the minutes or the, and the data from the first phone to like augment the second phone, which might be more reliable. And so you have this like weird kind of multi-phone thing and again we we're talking about poisoning data sets like from the legal side or from a from a state perspective one thing that really disturbs me is like the rate in which cell phone and social media usage amongst again african-american um youth for example is used to build narratives around um who they are when during prosecution right and like when cell phones are like basically now an indispensable part of a prosecutor's case. And it's like people who were taken, a photo of taken was taken of them together two years prior to a crime and, and posted on Instagram. And then that is used to link the two of them together as part of like a conspiracy to commit a crime later down the track. Um, I heard- XXX Tentacion. I mean, that was like the first thing people were doing or like looking at his like social media use and who else was in the area geolocating. Right, there was, yeah, there was geolocation. Geolocation is a big part of this, yeah. And who else had like interacted with XXX's profile. I mean, the online the detectives like found some kids. <laughs> yeah, and the cops but they were in that wrong, case were also kids. The cops <laughs> did find the person from Instagram. The guy was yeah, bragging about it. I was right, it. he was bragging about but it. But this yeah. is a, I mean, this I think though is more about the, the use of social media by uh, 
by law enforcement for ultimately character assassination or for kind of surreptitiously, if that's the right word, yeah. linking people together yeah. who are, might be very well innocent but took a picture with a guy who committed yeah. a crime later so, so two me, years ago. Let me, uh, let me give you a more insidious version of this, right? So uh, we all sort of have this idea that an online persona is like a playful thing or like something that's not necessarily representative of you as a person in a lot of cases, I, right? I wish we all had that idea. <laughs> like, that's the general. Do, yeah. no, that's the general. That's the general. Class, um, British individuals who can't make that <laughs> distinction. But, but you know, but also, you know what I mean. Like on a whole, the meme is like the idea is that like you have like the online persona is like a part of a broader right. individual, yeah. right? Right. Um, that's the broader. Be, right. That's the broader understanding yeah. of it, right? Um, and in 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 many cases, like. In these kinds of situations, when hip hop and the law intersects, that's the opposite. Like people, people's online personas are used as evidence, as like right. character, as you said, character judgments, right? In like Six a way that's in jail, right? I wonder if they used his social media. Yeah, to of like course, lock him a up, lot of right? it. I yeah. just wonder. I just wonder if like then, especially for a young person, if like the absence of any social media, the absence of any of that data, could just be used to be incriminating as true. well. That they have something to hide. Yeah, true. You're not. The, you're not the first person to say this. I, I did a thing at the same conference. Um, I did a panel on um, on privacy, and um, this guy came up to me, and he was like. Uh, he, he he was like, my name is Osama, and um, I never get checked because I've got all of the social media when I go through the U.S. Like, maybe surveillance is a good thing. And I'm like, I didn't really have an answer for that. <laughs> well, because he has social media. Yeah, he, he was like, he, no, he was like all over social media. And he was like, what if, if I went dark, then maybe the police oh, would right. think I'm Osama. And <laughs> I, I think uh, that was a really weird... I, there's just this anecdote that I remember reading about about the new uh, automated Amazon stores, whatever, where there's no mm. cat checkout, and uh, it was an interview with a black person who had used it, and that they felt like this kind of surveillance was the first time where people weren't assuming that they were stealing things, and it was actually oh. like, well, that's because they're more stealing secure. that every, they're, they're assuming that everyone will steal something, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> but because of that, it was actually there, there's a real sense of equality there, and that it was oh, actually really like a, a, an interesting, like, yeah, I, I really didn't expect that. Um, What's well, than the, one sector society feeling like they're always like under a special watch. Everybody feeling like they're under right. special well, watch. There's equality. Let's, let's make it a quick wall, right? Yeah. So, so, but here's the thing that really blows my mind about this, and this comes back to like the structural kinds of assumptions that we've made about stuff. You don't need facial recognition for a store like that to work. For example, right. there are companies that do tracking who track based off shoes. Right. Right. Oh what? my God. That's yeah. Crazy. Because shoes, like, what's the likelihood that, like, more than two, like, in a group of fifty shoppers, what's the likelihood that more than two of them will have the same type of shoe? Well, it depends the neighborhood you're in. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in Noicom, you're probably gonna but get then, Air Force One. But I also Nike think that's, Nike, that's an easy. Nike, I mean, that's an easy hack too, though. I, I think because that was kind of the point of the in the early two thousands, kind of the hood uniform of four XL white tees, right. really baggy jeans, right. and like Air Force Ones, like. All the dudes, all the corner boys, all wore the same thing. Yeah. All these oversized clothes, so you couldn't see if they had a gun in their waist. And then when they put out a call for somebody doing something, a uh, black male, like 16, white t-shirt, baggy white t-shirt, baggy blue jeans, like white shoes. This is just. That's actually. This is gray man. This is gray man theory. I mean, of course, and of you could right. certainly try to pick the most generic clothing to wear. I mean, generally when I'm, I mean, okay, I'm like a white guy traveling, so it's already kind of safe, but I always like try Well, I mean, I guess I'm wearing. You look like a celeb. I know you Norm, dress like a celeb when you go through the airport. Norm Corp. No, I like <laughs> to wear like, just like, like schlub, like, like absolute schlub. <laughs> like a celeb. Just need, need a yeah. shirt that says like number one dad and just walk yeah, through security exactly. with that on. But I also wonder then like maybe the real way to have OPSEC is to like have a totally fake social media presence that you're just like really deliberately. But that's like a job. You then have to pay somebody to maintenance That's like that. an extreme yeah, OPSEC but solution. Th but I, mean, that's, yeah. th there's, I mean, there's already like uh, – professional kind of troll farms or astroturfing surfaces, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I couldn't imagine it be that difficult for s just hire somebody to make you a clean profile and maintain it to some semblance of real use. Right. And then, um, you know, I mean, that could easily be a, a service that I, I could imagine It probably happening. already exists, actually. I mean, like, but, yeah, maybe you could just call one of these astroturfing or yeah. troll farm kind of companies and say, hey, could you just build me a profile what that looks really clean? What would the price really on that clean? be, do you think? Probably, build know, $10 a month. I no. Start, start a service. So yeah. Instead it's of Patreon. Like, yeah. Instead Internet. of Patreon, you guys just, like, <laughs> well, we, I think we do. I, I'm definitely interested in the troll farm startup. For the thousand dollar Patreon level, we will build you a profile and we will maintenance it. 
And it'll be the most inoffensive white yeah. profile ever. <laughs> exactly. I definitely know some, like, I guess they're sort of old enough to not have a big, well, like, they wouldn't have a social media presence, but like some rich people that you would think would have a lot of news articles about them. And if you search for them, it's just not there. Right. So I definitely think oh, that there's yeah. internet reputation is like a big industry, right. especially for rich people. Right. Um, oh, absolutely. So it's actually, it's a big, it's a big deal for almost anyone. Like the number of, I mean, like, you know, there's amazing stories about like even just things that seem really banal, like, um, people posting photos of themselves like um skiing like extreme skiing who then get denied like health insurance like right. that's a oh, real thing that happens huh. today right? yeah wow, that's a real really. thing yeah totally totally so when they assess your health insurance or your life insurance yeah they then... well i mean like if you look at wow. there's a i mean there was a last week uh, last month i'm sorry there was a there was a healthcare provider in the u.s who basically announced that they were stopping any plan that um for anybody who didn't have like a fitbit Oh right! Yeah. I, remember, I remember reading about that. That's this. crazy. So, so basically, you're in a situation where, like, oh well, we can tailor your. We've got two benefits. Firstly, we can tailor it to exactly your lifestyle, and secondly, it's going to be cheaper because the risk is lower for everybody because we're just going to boot out everyone that either won't or can't afford a Fitbit. So, we want to talk about like digital precariousness again. Wow. Like, I mean, these these systems will start to multiply. Wait, do they not? provide the Fitbit? I thought that that was part of it, but maybe not. I don't know. I thought that they provided the Fitbit. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, I don't think it ultimately matters really because you still need a device, for example, that can, they can, right. can read to it. But as well. is, isn't the pre-existing conditions clause, is that not still, that, that you don't need to, like that there is no denying for precondition? Is that not a, a remnant of Obamacare that still exists? I don't know, actually. I, haven't I don't know. With... I know it's in the balance. I actually right. don't know the answer to I that. I also don't think that it's necessarily dystopian to have these sorts of like, it's just a kind of like behavioral economics or like nudge theory to have it's sort of an incentive-based thing, potentially. Like, if you, you know, you show that you've worked out a lot, you get a lower rate. Or yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember UBI is when I was employed at a company. You actually paid less in healthcare if you showed that you had a gym membership. Every oh, month. really? Huh. Yeah, and I was living in a warehouse at the time, anyways, kind of like a squat. So uh, I had the gym, anyways, because that's where I took a shower. <laughs> <laughs> Goes but, once a day. But I, I definitely have heard of like sort of yeah augmented UBI schemes that would be based off of these things where the government mm. can basically, yeah, use behavioral economics to nudge Biometric people data. into better yeah. into better behavior and eating more vegetables and reading more books or whatever, which, you know, I don't know. There's, I can see both sides right, of Right, because you live in a neighborhood where you can have access to good vegetables and, uh, you know, like a sure. gym yeah, that would yeah. also participate right. in the, you know, open space to go whatever. What the problem, the problem with that is, is that this is true of like when we talk about echo chambers and like what you're talking about here as well with, with um, like behavioral changes, it forces the, and climate change too, it's all sort of related. We've got this idea that like it's the individual that needs changing, not the systemic right. behavior patterns behind it, right? If we want better food, just fucking ban mcdonald's like start to remove the um the, the structures that are in place that that result in like obesity and things like that and there's i mean obviously it's not just like fast food businesses are the reason but like there's all sorts of things around distribution and um and quality of produce divert like where that's diverted to yeah. based on like socioeconomic factors in right. societies and things like that and so the problem is is that like it's yeah as you as you said like it's it's so tiered towards what you should be doing as a person. Um, and, and a, you know, a great example of that is the number of people who judge um, people in lower socioeconomic classes for being unhealthy or overweight because, like, it turns out that eating healthy is fucking expensive. I could imagine. Why, why doesn't someone do, like, a br like blue apron for, like, the, like, lower class, like, lower income people? Yeah. Like, wouldn't that would be amazing, right? That's, well, there that's, is. It's a socialized like right. food distribution service. I mean, there it's are serious. definitely there, there is City Harvest, that, which is like sure. where they go around to like, you know, Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern and like all the nice restaurants, including the green markets. They gather all the unused produce that like, you know, is not going to be whatever distributed that in the next mm. 48 hours and they redistribute it to uh, to shelters. Of course, it doesn't help everybody, but at least it supplies the shelters with good food. That's, a, that's also a weird thing in the United States, I think, particularly where it's like, that it's actually hardest to be in that kind of liminal state of not totally impoverished right. and not yeah. totally Somewhere, like right. uh, getting the services and st steady. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the only time you're ever actually addressed is either if you don't need it or if you're in crisis. Right, everything between every <laughs> yeah. every everything in between is like not serviced. I think right. to go back to this um the the Amazon um 
warehouse though like this of course is the natural extension of the salt like the beloved self-serve checkout mm -hmm. that we like a lot of people have fought with is it beloved oh yeah, you mean that was sarcasm sorry yeah, my australian yeah, accent yeah, it does make it yeah, easier to steal yeah. things that's i mean i like a self-checkout a little bit like at a, are you like insane because, it always takes a thousand times longer and yeah, like but you can just steal but you can steal yeah, yeah, a few yeah. things yeah, i was really about to say you're the guy who puts all your produce are you 15 Oh, only 15-year-olds steal things from supermarkets? Like, a couple, like, a chocolate, an extra little why would, chocolate? But why would you, why would you care? Like, care, honestly, like, who cares? It was, like, a dollar fifty. Like, who cares? Like, well, that's what it. you, then that's it's called, a little that's discount. Right. That's right, there Car you go. It's called sticking it to the man, Carly. Try it sometime. <laughs> or it's called just marginally lowering your costs there. Yeah. Just that like, is a little insane. Little I'm sorry, that, that is insane. The five-finger discount. I'm with Dan. You don't ever steal candy, ever, ever, ever. I will say this, I, not even when I was 15 did I, but like definitely not now. I mean, I don't shoplift regularly, <laughs> but like occasionally I'm at a Starbucks, Look, you want to have an extra, you know, get the Reese's Pieces, you forget to pay already, you're paying off a card. You All do All I'm not. saying. Yeah, sometimes oh I take a little God. chocolate. I'm a, come on, I'm a little mischievous boy, whatever. Okay, we're going to get you a candy bowl, so you can We're going to have to censor all this steal. out on my, my confessions. <laughs> Ultimately, I think um, Daniel's problem is that like sometimes the interface is very confusing. It's very easy to accidentally label very nice organic produce as potatoes. Yeah, just, right. just, I mean, okay, I do, I do I did this. Pay for it. You did pay for it, but sometimes you sometimes mark them, it mislabeled. You pay for the non-organic fruit instead say? of the organic fruit. For I mean, printing, printing you cannot come to my store. I'm, I'm like banning you from yeah, my store. Right. I mean, then there's the but the OG hack is you just print out barcodes for cheaper items on sticky paper and you just pop it. Yeah, over exactly. The big item. That's yeah, a, that's a professional method. <laughs> there. Um, so, but what I wanted, to, okay, so yeah. what I was going to say about that is like. There's all sorts of un other unintended consequences of things like the the Amazon store and the self serve checkout. Like for example, there are a lot of people who live in precarious situations who that cashier experience might be the only human contact they have for that day. Oh right. right. And like so suddenly, like when you start to automate these things, you're actually like really fundamentally changing people's lives in ways that we, we think are convenience, but for some it like removes the lifelines from people. Um, this idea of, of, of automated customer service in particular um, completely ensures the, the social um, component of it. Totally agree. I mean, when you work in, when you're working also like as a freelancer, especially if you're doing like solo work, whether that's coding or writing, the whole point of getting a coffee, the whole point is so that you have human contact yeah. for like 15 minutes and then go back to your screen. Well, I mean, think about like Starbucks, for example, and how many like memes there are of like asking Starbucks baristas out, right? Like there's that, uh, like that whole, <laughs> con like that whole, I mean, and obviously like the jokes either side are either it works out or it's like super creepy, but like. I mean, if anyone wants to do a um, a short film about, uh, like, a depressing short film about an old person who has their like one bright interaction replaced by a, a <laughs> self serve <laughs> trash can checkout, <laughs> and then tries to communicate with it, <laughs> oh. no, I, I would totally, I would totally yeah. co-write that with someone. Seriously. <laughs>
of um, that we were talking about before around like the infantilization of, right. of, of tech. And so what, do, what are some of the ways in which you can start to do that? I think maybe systems where we still have things like cloud-based storage or like services that are standardized, but also lean more heavily on you and the immediacy of you as a person might be an interesting thing to explore. I think what we need is an actual radical departure from what we have in terms of screen culture, in terms of the politics of like energy use, for example, with, with this kind of technology. Like if you decentralize the energy use, you can like bring the scope of it down because it's it's then tailored for each individual person rather than trying to give everyone 10 gigabytes of right. space and uploading everything they have to it. You know, these sorts of, and then, you know, ch starting to gently change some of the expectations we have because, you know, maybe it's okay in the future that you can't access everything that you ever have all the time. Mm from anywhere right i mean I'll maybe i don't know if this is worth talking about but like i do feel like there's like, just like we were talking about like food deserts there's yeah. like definitely like connectivity deserts like i wonder what the difference is um in people's like having different kinds of bandwidth well, like even that yeah. makes you much more provincial right uh, to just not be able to use the use the apps in the way that they're intended and i think a lot of app designers they also are designing for this ideal use set where like it's fast enough to use, and a lot of things I think are just you can't use it for that reason alone. Right, in yeah. suburbia, Absolutely. boomers. You know, my mom lives in sort of the edge between the country and like exurbia, and right. I mean, she doesn't. You know, she has limited data. There's she like has edge very culture slow. and three G culture. And there LTE is. I mean, culture. Right. It, it's like three G culture. It's like cassette it's tapes versus vinyl versus <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, right. MP3s. Yeah, right. It's a different. And it's a different way that you interact. You don't stream stuff the way you do here in a city. Yeah. I mean, to wrap things up, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of this is, we're talking about problems that happen on really macro kind of uh, big scope systemic levels and how those trickle down into smaller problems. And I, I guess my question is, if there's a way, you know, on a macro level that we as users of these systems can actually make it a better experience, whether that's taking the internet like less seriously, less as a literal mirror of reality where a like is actually endorsing something with your deepest belief, or if it's disrupting our data collection by maybe sharing accounts using more group accounts or flop accounts or randomly liking things to fuck up your, your data profile. Um, so I guess, Kate, what shifts could we make in our perception that could actually help with some of these issues? We being regular users. Yeah. Play MMOs. <laughs> What's your favorite MMO? I don't play MMOs. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I'm really saying is like, what if we reimagine social media in such a way where all of the anxiety that's currently formed by having like no real output except like this kind of churning of like feelings and churning of conflict, if you redirect those into like actual outcomes, maybe there's something there. I mean, you know, I keep coming back again, like there's, of course, there's rivalry and scandal and all sorts of things, like terrible things that happen in MMOs for sure. But like at the same time, there is something to this idea of like shared narrative, mm -hmm. um, uh, storytelling, things like that. And I know like this is going to be a deeply problematic thing I say, and there's lots of ways that it can be argued against, but like the difference between something like Snapchat versus, or even TikTok versus, um, versus Twitter and Facebook, right? Like they have goals to them. Mm -hmm. Like you're performing on those. And even to a lesser extent, like Instagram, although it's kind of a pretty much a wasteland at this point, mm -hmm. there is still like this idea of like um, uh, part of the reasons why those are picked up is because they have like a shared goal. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, like they will pass a use by day in the same way as certain MMOs pass a use by day. Everything has a, has a lifespan. But I guess what I'm sort of saying is that like, finding these sorts of outlets and like ways of interacting with people in a shared online space and then like knowing when to jump ship. I think we're basically, <laughs> to go back to the analogy, I think everyone's unhappy because MTV, our, our version of MTV is really shit. Platform and, diving. Yeah. That's what we need to start doing, platform diving, free falling off yeah. platforms. Well, other I'm going to start some group DMs. All right. Well, that's, that's a new, right. yeah, that's a new. <laughs> So I can be I'd, platinum take, know everything. I'd, I'd play MMOs with you guys. Just yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> new, that's what, I think that's our next step, actually. We're going to branch yeah. out into MMOs. Yeah, live stream. Yeah. I mean, well, live streaming is a great example of that, too. Oh, right? yeah. Like, I mean, we've been planning uh, some Twitch some Twitch ideas for Yeah, a while. you have the green screen, so. I have the green screen. <laughs> the, yeah. the Twitch, Twitch, well, is pretty, Twitch, is, Twitch is pretty intense, though. 
Pretty you can uh, you can uh, use it for your own. First of all, I think Kate broke the record of longest we've recorded. So <laughs> thank, so you very, no, thank you very thank you. Don't be sorry. Of, that's like hey, that's achievement there. unlocked. That's yeah. Not <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Marathon. But, you uh, get a badge for me. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, yeah, and I, I, I we'd we'd love to talk to you again, but we really appreciate you uh, joining us here and thank you. yeah, Opening and um, we can find cards. and yeah. we can find people can find you at. At Helveticade, right? Yeah, like and Helvetica the font and yes. DE. Any other um, places? Like, where can they? Where's? Is there a single repository for your writing, so to speak? Or? Um, I'd, so I did a like. I've got two pieces. One is uh, one on protocol governance, which is a talk, and then the weaponized design piece, and it's at Shiba computer. Shiba as in the dog mm-hmm. computer. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you very much, guys. This is Thank, great. You. Thank you. Thank you. Super. Yeah. Great. All right. Just want to take this time at the end to, well, first of all, thank Cade for stopping by. And second of all, thank all of our listeners and Patreon supporters and non-Patreon supporters who still consider themselves part of the squad for uh, contributing so much recently in terms of links and tips and interesting thoughts and ideas. Uh, please continue to send them to us. We have a form on the site. Uh, additionally, you can write to us at desk at newmodels.io. Of course, the more people that join our Patreon, the more time we can spend on new models as opposed to being meat for the meat grinder of capitalism in a precarious age. Patreon.com slash new models is the link and we will have new t-shirts coming soon. So there's other ways to contribute as well. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow at Helveticade. This is Lil Internet, Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. We will see you next episode.